Great, it would be good if you could keep that reading open. Uh, Luke 5, page 1032. Shall we just pray as we start? Lord God, we do thank you so much uh, for your word. And Lord God, we pray that this morning you would speak to us by your spirit through your word. uh, Into our hearts. That we may see Jesus for who he truly is and put our trust in him. In his name we pray. Amen. One of the kind of cult films that was going around on a video cassette when I was at school uh, was the film Good Morning Vietnam. Don't know if anyone's heard of it, seen it. Uh, it's a satirical film about the Vietnam War in the 1960s. And it's quite a well known, poignant, and emotional part of the film where you see a sequence, a sort of montage, if you like, of distressing images of the war. And the soundtrack to these images is Louis Armstrong's hit song, What a Wonderful World. So you see people sleeping on the streets, troops going to war, women working in the fields being bombed by American aircraft, children running for their lives, a summary execution, a solitary man sitting on the side of the road, the destruction of a beautiful country. And all the while... The soundtrack is Louis Armstrong singing in his gravelly voice. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. You know, whatever you think about the Vietnam War, that is a powerful piece of cinema. The lyrics of the song stand in stark contrast to the terrible pictures that you see. It is a paradox of sight and sound. And as you watch, no doubt, as the director intended, you think, things should not be like this. Humanity seems to have made such a disastrous mess of itself. And it echoes, doesn't it, our own experience of the paradox of life. You know, much of life is good. It promises so much. And yet, if we're honest, so often our lives and the lives of those around us they're not always happy and glorious. Everything seems to have been tarnished in some way. So intuitively, we echo the cry of people down the ages, surely the world should not be like this. Well, Luke's Gospel presents us with the amazing good news that God's power is being re-established. We've tried to push God out of the world. We've tried to impose our own will. The result is complete chaos. Our lives are a mess. Sickness, suffering, decay and death. They've all entered the world. Things are not as they should be. Not as God intended or wanted them to be. But the early chapters of Luke tell us that God is going to re-establish. God's power is going to be re-established. God's appointed ruler has come and will establish his kingdom. And these two accounts we're looking at today give us just a glimpse of what a glorious kingdom it will be. You know, the overarching point that flows from these two miracles is this. Jesus has come with all of God's power and authority to deal with the effects of sin in God's world. He's come with all of God's power and authority to deal with the effects of sin in God's world. And through the astonishing words and touch of Jesus, we see his power, his authority, and his compassion. 
and we see him deal with man's greatest need. I've got just two points this morning, and the first one is this. Jesus is powerful and compassionate. Powerful and compassionate. Just have a look at verse 12. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. You know, to understand the significance of what is going on here, we need to grasp what leprosy was uh, in first century Israel. Leprosy was considered to be an incurable and terminal condition. So if you're diagnosed with leprosy, it's akin to being given a death sentence. And Luke, the doctor, tells us this guy is covered with leprosy. So it's at an advanced stage. He would have carried the appearance and the stench of death. And the consequences of having leprosy were truly terrible. Leprosy had great symbolic significance. It was considered to be emblematic of humanity's rebellion against God. A leper was a living picture of sickness, suffering, death, God's judgment on humanity. And so lepers, they were excluded from God's people, shut out from God's presence. They were contagious, so they were required to live away in isolation. They were unclean, so they couldn't go to the temple to meet with God. They were segregated and ostracised. Make no mistake, it's not that the leper had individually led a particularly sinful life. There's nothing to suggest this leper suffered because of his own sin. But lepers were seen as a living embodiment of God's judgment on humanity. It was emblematic of the human condition. And it was a heartbreaking and life-changing diagnosis. So as Jesus walks through the town, a leper approaches him. You can imagine the crowds, can't you? Sort of drawing back with horror as this horribly disfigured man comes forward. What's going to happen? Look at verse 12, second part. When he saw Jesus, his face... He fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Do you notice the leper has no doubt about the power of Jesus? He has faith that Jesus can heal him. him. The question is, is he willing to? And that split-second pause following that question, just think about it. It must have felt like an eternity. All the tension, the drama in that moment... And then verse 13. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Wow. What a moment. What a moment. Imagine how powerful that touch must have been. You know, this man's probably not been touched by another human in years. He must have ached for some kind of human contact, longed for some kind of acceptance, some kind of love and affection shown towards him. And here is Jesus touching him, healing him, transforming him. What a moment. Do you see what's going on here? We saw a few weeks ago in verse 18 of chapter 4 that Jesus announces what he is all about. His priority is to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, to bring sight to the spiritually blind, to release the oppressed. This is the year of the Lord's favour. And here we have a picture of Jesus' power and authority to do exactly what he said he was going to do. It's just as if with a word and a touch, Jesus reverses 
the effects of humanity's rebellion against God in this man's life. Jesus is showing he is the appointed ruler who will usher in God's new creation, the one who will reverse the impact of human rebellion against God. You know, I'm increasingly aware as as I get older of the reality that the world is far from perfect. I'm only 35, sounds stupid, it's an obvious point. But it kind of dawns on you as you get older, that's the case. My wife Nikki and I have some friends here in Norwich who have a beautiful two-month-old girl who's been diagnosed with chronic heart failure. And the prognosis is terrible. It is difficult. Things are not as they should be. And many tears are shed. This is not as the world was made to be. I know many of us in this church know firsthand the pain of sickness, of suffering, of decay and of death. The pain of loneliness, separation, isolation. Things are not as they should be. And daily we see the terrible consequences of humanity's rebellion against God. Our lives are not always happy and glorious. And at times we cry, at times we despair. Sometimes even we're angry with God. And most of the time we're not even that honest with each other about how difficult these things are. But look at Jesus. He steps into Israel where this leper embodies the human condition. And with a word and a touch, he brings transformation. You know, surely, surely it transforms our experience of living in a fallen world to know there is one who can deal with a mess that we're in. There's one who set a day when finally and fully things will be put right. A day when there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. You know, a day when God himself will wipe away every tear from human eyes. Jesus deals with sickness, disease and death. And he conquers our greatest enemy, death. if If we're Christians here this morning, our end is not death and judgment. Our end is with Jesus in a glorious new creation. Maybe you're here this morning, you're not a Christian yet, and you wonder, what is God like? Well, look at Jesus. Here is the Son of God, the King of Kings, God's appointed ruler. Yeah, he doesn't hide behind the walls of a palace. He doesn't go about wearing a crown. He doesn't hide in an armoured limousine with bodyguards. He enters our world. He mixes with ordinary people. He deals with messy lives. He touches the untouchable. He knows and is moved by our pain. He's a king of deep love and compassion. Jesus' healing of this leper is a picture of the cleansing that we all desperately need. Maybe you're conscious, you know that your life's a mess. There are things buried in the deep, dark corners of your heart that you know are not good, that you're ashamed of, stuff you never want other people to know about. You know, the God of the Bible is a God of absolute power and unconditional love. He doesn't shrink back from you and hold back. 
the hand of Jesus, the loving hand of Jesus is held out to you, offering welcome, love and acceptance. Who is Jesus willing to touch a physical wreck of a man? What a symbol of his willingness to touch a spiritual wreck, however rubbish we may feel. Jesus is powerful and compassionate. Second, Jesus is powerful and forgiving. Do you notice in verse 14 that Jesus instructs the leper not to tell anybody uh, about what's happened? It's slightly curious, isn't it? Why, Why is that? Jesus gives similar instructions on other occasions in the Gospels, after he's done miraculous things, why, why not go and tell, tell others? Well, the answer is this. Because the primary purpose of Jesus is not to bring about physical healing. Yes, he's prepared to heal, but Jesus is not first and foremost a physical healer. First and foremost, he is a spiritual healer. He's come to deal with a far deeper and dirtier problem. He's come to preach the good news. And so crowds that seek perhaps only physical healing have the potential to be a distraction. So that's partly why we see Jesus withdraw to lonely places, away from the crowds to pray, as he does in verse 15. But you notice back in verse 14, he tells the man to go to the priest, the kind of consultant doctor, public health officer, if you like, of the day. He's to go and present himself uh, as a testimony, a proof Uh, if you like. So they could see the power of Jesus to cleanse and to heal. The man is to present himself as a witness that the Messiah has arrived. God's anointed king has come. And that's the context of what follows in verse 17. It's almost as if Jesus has laid down the gauntlet to the religious establishment. He's kind of set up this confrontation that follows. Just have a look at verse 17. One day, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law, who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, were sitting there. You know, this is a big-time power encounter. That's what this is. It's like gathering the theological great and the good under one roof. It'd be a bit like having the Archbishop of Canterbury, Chair of Synod, Cambridge Professor of Divinity, Will, obviously. Uh, <laughs> all in one room, and they're having some kind of seminar, listening to Jesus, seeing him exercise his authority, trying to work out, what's going on? What's this guy about? Is he from God? What's going on? And so as the seminar unfolds, some men, they bring a paralyzed man on a mat to Jesus for healing. They've probably heard, haven't they? Jesus only needs to say the words, and people are healed. So you can imagine the excitement in the man's heart, the paralyzed man's heart. No more dependence, no more charity handouts. He shows faith, allows himself to be carried to Jesus. Place is crowded, they can't get in, they, they don't give up, they climb up on the roof. And as Jesus, Jesus is teaching, you can picture the scene, can't you? There's a commotion on the roof, a hole starts to form. Bits of the roof, mud and straw fall in, the sun streams in, and the man is slowly lowered down on this mat. You can, you can imagine the room going silent, can't you? You can hear a pin drop. Jesus probably stops preaching. And the man comes down on his stretcher and lands right in front of Jesus. Everyone's on the edge of their seats. What is Jesus going to say? What will he do? Look at verse 20. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. What sort of an answer is that? You know, imagine what the disciples would have thought. Jesus has got it wrong. 
this guy's got a serious physical problem. He's paralysed. And Jesus, you've got a track record of dealing with these issues. Yet what does Jesus say? Friend, your sins are forgiven. You can picture, can't you, the other man's friends looking, looking at each other, thinking, you must be having a laugh. We just carried this guy to you. We could have preached a sermon. We want action, not kind of sanctimonious words. But Jesus knew, didn't he, exactly what he was doing. Friend, your sins are forgiven. There's no greater need than anyone has than the need to be forgiven. And Jesus came, first and foremost, to deal with a spiritual problem, not a physical one. And with his answer, friend, your sins are forgiven. He shows, doesn't he, with piercing clarity, the need of every person is a forgiveness of sins. You know, again, there's nothing to indicate this, this man was any worse than anyone else. No suggestion his own sin was responsible for his paralysis. He's probably just like everyone else, like you and me. Outwardly a decent guy, did the right things, tried to live honestly, perhaps went to synagogue. But inwardly, just like every person, he lived as if he was the centre of his life, not God. As if everything revolved around him. He'd rejected the rule of God in his life. In short, he was a sinner. But what does Jesus say? Friend, your sins are forgiven. I was at my grandmother's funeral on Friday. And one of the things that is often striking about funeral services is the the impression they can create of a kind of seamless transition from this life to the next. So we kind of move on from the difficulties of this life to our rightful place in heaven, where we rest in peace. An inevitable, seamless, and deserved transition. It's a nice thought. And it's a thought that part of me very often would like to buy into. But it's wrong. It's not our right to move seamlessly to heaven. Instead, it's our right to stand before God in judgment. And all of us, whatever our physical condition, have rejected the rule of God in our lives. Have we loved God with all our hearts, all our minds, all our soul, all our strength? Of course we haven't. And here is Jesus identifying himself as the Son of Man. This is God's King, God's Judge, God's Ruler, the one to whom God has given all authority over creation forever, the one to whom one day everyone will be called to give an account of their lives. The one before whom every man and woman will stand and be judged. So for all of us, what's our deepest need? It's to find forgiveness. And Jesus says, friend, your sins are forgiven. You don't need a theology degree, do you, to realise the kind of shocking nature of these words. It's kind of key stage one stuff that my daughter's doing at school. You know, the theological elite, they certainly know the significance of what Jesus has said, and they're horrified. Look at verse 21. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law begin, began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? It's true, isn't it? You can't forgive somebody for something that you're not responsible for. You know, imagine uh, I'm coming to church one Sunday and 
driving into the church car park, which is always difficult in this church. And on the way in, I crash into, uh, I crash into Will's car. And uh, Will goes grumbling to Alan, so that idiot Alex can't drive. Look what he's done to my car. And Simon says, Alan says, don't worry, Will. Don't worry about it. Relax, I've sorted it out. I've forgiven him. You know, Will, assuming he's in a reasonable mood, would say, this is outrageous. What right have you got to forgive Alex for trashing my car? It's my car. You've got no right to do it. Who the heck do you think you are? That's what's going on here, isn't it? Jesus is saying to the man, I forgive you for everything you've ever done. And the Pharisees get what that means. Our sins are against God. So only God can forgive us. So the claim of Jesus can only be one of divinity. He's claiming to be God. But Jesus knows, doesn't he, exactly what they're thinking. Look at what he asks them in verse 23. Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk, but that you you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? It's quite a puzzling question, isn't it? I wonder how, how would you answer that question? Which do you think is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say to a paralyzed man, get up and walk? I guess at first glance, we might think it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because that's invisible, isn't it? You can't tell whether it's happened. But to say get up and walk, that requires some kind of physical, immediate proof. But isn't that missing the point? Because Jesus is in the presence here of theological brain boxes. And they know that to say your sins are forgiven is an impossible thing to say. Only God can say that. Yet surely at the same time to say to a paralysed man, get up and walk, that is an impossible thing to say. You know, the guy's going to have no muscles. He's been lying down for, for years possibly. Ask any good physiotherapist. I know one. <laughs> and they tell you that's not possible. So both are impossible for a man. Only God can declare sins forgiven and only God can miraculously heal. But what does Jesus do? Jesus does the physically impossible to prove his power and authority to do the spiritually impossible. Look at verse 24. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. Jesus does the physically impossible to prove his power and authority to Authority to do the spiritually impossible. And he leaves us, doesn't he, in no doubt that he has a power and authority on earth to forgive. You know, and if Jesus can forgive a paralyzed man more than 2,000 years ago, then he can forgive us here today too. Jesus is no longer walking the earth. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven, but he is still in the business of forgiving people on earth today. And we only have to read on in Luke's Gospel to know how it's accomplished. Many of us know how it's accomplished. Jesus goes to the cross to carry God's judgment for your rebellion against God and mine. And as we trust him, 
the punishment is paid, the judgment is dealt with, and we're declared forgiven today. We can know we're forgiven today. Jesus is willing to forgive anyone who will come to him, confess their sins, and put their trust in him. And it opens up a whole life forgiven by God and into eternity. Will we trust him? I guess if we're Christians here this morning, we know that. But so often we forget that. And there's no basis for us holding on as Christians to past guilt. You know, Jesus declares us forgiven today. Satan does so much to try and undermine that. He whispers in our ear, you're not good enough. You don't deserve to be forgiven. You keep revisiting that sin. Who would love you? You're untouchable. So every day we need to lean our weight on Jesus and trust him that he has forgiven us. You know, if we're a Christian here today, God looks at us and is delighted. He is delighted. Why? Because he looks at us and he sees Jesus. And he is delighted with Jesus. Maybe you've been sitting here this morning and thinking, you know what, I know this stuff. These are basic revision points. I've heard nothing that is new or fresh. I'm ashamed to say, when I first looked at these passages, that is what I thought. What am I going to say? This is just revision stuff. Well, if that's you, just look at verse 25. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he'd been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. The man who was forgiven went home praising God. People were filled with awe with what they saw. They were amazed and gave praise to God. You know, awesome is an overused word, isn't it? It's used all the time. This is truly awesome. The people were in awe of what they'd seen. If we ever get tired or bored or numb about hearing of a God who forgives us sinful people, then something has gone badly wrong in our hearts. If we're not conscious of what it means to be forgiven by God, then we've, we've barely begun understanding uh, what it is to be a Christian. I love the story of the great Methodist uh, preacher Wesley. I've heard this many times, you may have had as well. He famously used to preach in the open air to Welsh coal miners uh, during their lunch breaks. And the miners used to come up from the pits uh, onto the hillsides to hear Wesley preach. And their faces were black uh, with the coal dust from being in the mines. But when they returned to work, for the start of their next shift, their faces were streaked white. Streaked white. Streaked white from the tears that flowed as they came to recognise their own sinfulness and the awesome truth of the God who said to them, Friends, your sins are forgiven. You know, it's not fundamentally about outward displays of emotion. It's a good job because I struggle. But that surely is a picture of a heart that has some understanding of what it means when Jesus says, Friend, your sins are forgiven. And what should be our response to a God that says, Friend, your sins are forgiven? 
Well, the clue surely is in the, the bits that bookends these two passages. So what do the disciples do in verse 11 of chapter 4 that we heard about last week? Verse 11 of chapter 4, they pulled up their boats, they pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything and followed Jesus. What does Levi do in the passage that follows in verse 28? Levi got up, <clears throat> left everything and followed Jesus. We'll be looking more at Levi next week. Friend, your sins are forgiven. What should our response be? To put our trust in Jesus, to worship him, and to obey him. Should we pray? Lord God, we do thank you that you're not a God who has abandoned us uh, to the mess that we're in. You're not a God who's left us to our own devices. But that in Jesus, you stepped into the mess that we're in uh, to meet us where we're at. To deal with our messy lives. And we praise you this morning for Jesus, for the good news uh, that he is, the great news uh, that he is. And we ask that we be people that would lean our weight on Jesus, that would trust at Jesus, that he would be sufficient uh, for us. And Lord God, that we would leave li- lead lives that are in worship to you and are obedient to you. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.